Welcome, everyone, to episode 169 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're slipping on our cowboy boots and hopping into the saddle with a review of one of Netflix's awards-driven films this year, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. Before we get to that, though, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, I was going to, at some point, make a howdy joke, but it just doesn't feel like the right Western to make that joke with, so I'm just going to ask how you're doing today. Yeah, I'm not sure if we'll ever get a Western like that again. Uh, you know, just a Toy Story old, Five, old-fashioned one like that. Yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm good, Scott. Uh, I'm excited for for this movie. Um, you know, this was on my most anticipated of the year when we did that a long time ago. Um, I you know really wanted to see it in theaters because I felt like um, that it was going to be amplified by the theatrical experience um you know just visually was kind of where my mind where my mind was at um and i did yeah 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 yeah. um but i did manage to find a theater the chelsea theater actually independent theater in chapel hill that i've been to before yesterday that was showing it um and so i was able to to drive up there and see it and yeah um you know without saying too much until we get into the review the theatrical experience definitely did amplify it in the ways that I was thinking and in other ways too. So, I mean, I was, I was very glad that I, that I did that and that I was able to to find a screen that was showing it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's exciting. You know, we're, we're winding down the year here. We only have just a few more weeks until our best of the year lists are actually going to be revealed. Uh, but a yeah. few, few big movies between now and then, but you know, my, my list is taking shape and it's hard decisions are, um are gonna have to be made in in the next few weeks because there's about 18 movies that i would like to have in my top 10 probably you know i was thinking the same thing because this week i've i've had a busy week myself in terms of watching movies um i think i saw like a few i saw three movies out i mean i'd already seen this one obviously at the new york film festival but i saw three other movies for the first time this week that were definitely like movies that could have been in my top 10 kind of thing um which i can talk about a little bit later but <clears throat> it's crazy i i've got we've gotten to the point of the year where i've now i've converted my my letterbox watch list to the other to the rest of the 2021 movies that i want to see before we talk about um a top 10 list obviously mm-hmm. some are higher priority than others like if i don't get to encanto it won't be the end of the world but i would like to oh, see encanto yeah. before the end of the year cuz apparently it is it is good um but yeah, things like that where it's like, you know, I've managed to see most of the movies that I've wanted to see this year, which I think is what the comment that I wanted to come back around to. There's only like 15 or 16 movies on that on that watch list right now where it feels like every other year we've done this. I've been like, well, there's like 50 more movies I'd like to see. Yeah, I uh, I also, in addition to, you know, watching this, obviously I caught up on Pig this week, which was one of those from like earlier in the year. Yeah, that I was that's like, one on my watch list. Yeah. yeah um, that I was like, I, I need to I definitely want to go back and catch up with this before we. Uh, you know, we get into to list season and maybe I'll talk a little bit about that in the second half because I know we have some Nicolas Cage news that we're going to get to. But 
Um, yeah, there, there's not many left, and there's even fewer that I'm like, oh, this has the potential to make, um, you know, make my list. Because even something like, you know, being the Ricardos, which obviously is is Aaron Sorkin, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Um, you know, just based on a trailer, a few reviews, you know, it's Nicole Kidman. I'm not sure this is going to be top 10 material for me, I think. It's still favored uh, for a Best Picture nomination right now, I, I think, last time I checked. Well, that doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> oh, you're right. It means it's the best of the year, actually. Every every film that gets nominated is the best of the year. Right. My mistake. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't have to be good to be the best of the year, Scott. Please, come on. You, you know the drill here. Look, I've definitely learned that from years of following the Oscars now. Yeah, fair enough. Well, as you already mentioned, we can we can sort of jump in to, to what we were going to talk about for the main meat of the podcast today. And as you mentioned, it is one of your most anticipated movies of the year. It's a movie that I got an early look at a couple months ago at the New York Film Festival. And it's a film that's been generating a lot of awards buzz as we start to enter this new cycle. And that is, of course, Jane Campion's first film in over a decade, Netflix's Western drama, The Power of the Dog based on a novel of the same name from the 1960s and starring Benedict Cumberbatch in the lead role of Phil Burbank, a wealthy ranch-owning cowboy in Montana in the mid-1920s, The Power of the Dog charts a course of just how insidious toxic masculinity and strong-willed stubbornness can be. Phil is a volatile, traditional cowboy with a capital C, while his brother George, played by Jesse Plemons, is kinder and less obsessed with his own image. During a cattle drive through Beach, Montana, George falls in love with the local restaurant owner and widow, Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst. While Phil belittles Rose's son, Peter, Cody Smith-McPhee, for his mannerisms and lisp, the emotional distance between the brothers is apparent and growing, and George one day marries Rose, bringing her and eventually her son back home with him. As tensions rise and conflicts brew under the surface between the foursome, the power of the dog lights its slow burn to the pace of Johnny Greenwood's string-driven score. Scott, did Jane Campion's long-awaited next outing live up to its awards -y billing, or was it less powerful and rather more a dog? Nice. Um, yeah, I... So when I go to see movies now, new movies in theaters, I've had a tradition of I will, you know, uh, take a picture of the ticket and post it on my Instagram story. And the reason I like doing that is because almost always I will get one or two people who will respond and say, oh, I, I want to see this or how was this or I saw this last night or just, you know, obviously we do this. I like talking about the movies and I like talking about them with like my friend, like the average moviegoer, maybe who doesn't even who doesn't necessarily follow um, movies as closely as we do as well. Um, and I did, of course, get a couple of people reaching out to me like, oh, what did you think of this movie? And, the, the, you know, the first thing I said to them is kind of what I have said in the intro, which was try to see this in theaters if you can. Um, yeah. And I don't just mean because it is a, you know, feast for the eyes. It is very visually stunning um, or because the sound is good. Um, I, I don't. I'm not in love with the Johnny Greenwood score. Um, I do think it goes a little bit too hard in some places for me. Um, but, I, you know, obviously that's part of the experience. Um, but mostly because this is such a meticulously crafted movie. Um, you know, you mentioned it's her first movie in 11 or 12 years or so. Um, you know, it feels like when you watch this that she has spent those last 11 or 12 years crafting every aspect of this movie because... You know, it, it is so intricately put together. And because of that, 
Um, I mean, it's, and it's also like, you know, patiently paced, right? This is not the harder they fall, right? To talk about another Western that we reviewed recently. It's not, you know, there's not gunfights from the first minute in this. It's, it's a slow burn to be sure. Um, and so it requires, you know, it, and demands your attention and your, you know, willingness to focus on the little details and to look at how Jane Campion is patching it all together um because i don't think you're going to be able to fully appreciate the movie unless you can see how it was put everything was put into place in the first you know third two-thirds of the movie um and i do think that everything you know was put into place and, and the other thing that i've said to people is this movie is incredibly well made like i don't think you're going to find many bad things to say about the filmmaking here um because I, you know, I think again, she's she's thought through every like every little look and you know detail it adds up to the reveals and the things that we learn about the characters. The characters in particular, the performances in particular, I think are where um, you know a second viewing is going to really breed new ground even and i know you've seen it twice now scott and, and you know not to spoil but it sounds like you enjoyed it more the second time um and i definitely see how that is, this is that type of movie because certain things that you think are going on in the first two-thirds of the movie are certain things about the performances again that strike you as maybe being one-dimensional or something in the first part of the movie um once more pieces start to fall into place and you realize oh hey this was all the plan the whole time like you I, I totally understand why this was the way that it was now it makes you want to go back and watch you know that first part of the movie and see and, and it's not like there's huge plot twists or anything um but it does have the feel of a movie like that has plot twists right where you want to go back and watch the movie again to see how everything was all put together because you know that it was that's just the type of you know, again, the craftsmanship, that's the type of movie that it is. Um, where I guess the only place I struggle with it is, though, is like, this is absolutely one of the best movies of the year, but it's not one of my favorite movies of the year, probably. Um, and it's one of those, I, I mean, I, I hate using this phrase because I feel like it gets overused, but it is one of those, I admire it more than I love it movie movies, um, where I get to the end and the one thing that i feel is wow that was a really good movie and that's it right like i don't i don't know that i feel anything deeper emotionally about the characters about the situation about the themes that are going on in this movie mm -hmm. um i just feel like i watched a really impressive technical exercise there um and i totally understand why this is getting the hype that it is i totally understand why it would be in the oscar race i mean right now it looks like this and belfast are kind of neck and neck for the top spot at best for best picture at the moment but mm -hmm. um but also like in in talking to people about it i am finding it hard to say it's a must see run out and see this i can't wait to see it again even though i know that second viewing is going to improve it probably if i if i get around to it uh i'm not like it's not that type of movie where i am just like effusive about it and i think you know that is just because it is by design again by design it's it's an emotionally cold movie it's like 
austere in the way that it is, you know, uh, in, in the way that the, everything plays out and the visuals and everything. Um, and I just am left a little empty at the end because I think, you know, the characters are very complex by design and it's not, it's, it's not a movie again, where it's like my allegiances are very strongly in one camp or if, if they are, that has changed by the end of the movie, I think, or you are, you are at least questioning, um, you know, where your allegiances lie at the end of the movie. And again, these are all good things about the movie. Um, it just, it's just missing it for me. Like, I, I don't know. I, I wish I could say what it is um, more tangibly that um, is like the one thing that is holding me back from giving this the highest possible review. Because again, I think it's, you know, a faultless production for the most part in the way that it is, is all put together. But I just didn't have that feeling that I wanted coming out of like one of my favorite movies of the year, for example. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of where I'm at. Very, very mixed emotions, I guess. But I'm obviously very positive on the movie uh, because I, I find it hard to say a lot bad about it. I guess it was just my personal experience with it um, was just a little more withdrawn. Interesting. Yeah. So I did I did this see this film a second time last night. You know, I came close <laughs> earlier in the week watching because I think Netflix has this new thing where they are releasing most of their movies on Wednesday which I think is actually a good thing. Uh, Disney Plus might have started that, actually, when they started dropping their TV shows on Wednesday. Um, and I think Netflix might be following suit a little bit, seeing that the traction is pretty good going into the weekend. Like, you get your initial people who are really excited, you build it up, and then even more people watch it on the weekend. But anyway, <clears throat> that's aside. Yeah, I. It, it is just a really arresting film, I think is the right way to, to put it. Like, it builds you up and builds you up and builds you up with tension. Like every single, oh, yeah. there, there's essentially five or six parts to the movie and, it, and it's laid out in more, almost like a chapter structure on the screen um, as it, as it goes along. And each one just builds and builds and builds tension. Like you, it's the kind of film when you watch it for the first time, you just have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Like you're five minutes into this movie and you're just like, I have no idea where this film's going to end up. Um, and, and I was, and you're talking about your admiration to the film. I mean, like, I admire so I mean pretty much everything about this film I think after the second watch and I guess I have less of a of a disconnect between like admiring and, and liking and loving something right like it is is not a film that's going to fill you with satisfying emotions and yeah. if that's like a critical part of uh, making something like a, a must-see movie or an experience that you would you know put above others I, I think that makes a lot of sense why why it wouldn't be but I think where it makes up for almost kind of like Phantom Thread did a few years back. I think it's, it's a very similar production in in, I mean, in, in several different ways, I think, to, to Phantom Thread in terms of you're not super you're not rooting in quotation marks for any character. Probably this film, at least I'd never found myself rooting for any character in the, in the film. Um, but something about all of these characters like you just can't take your eyes off the screen you your eyes just sort of magnetically follow these people um you know almost all four of them but i think especially a couple of them um on the screen as they move around because there are a lot of shots that you know the camera is relatively stationary and people move around them and i just found it 
just to be sort of completely in a holistic way captivating um, from a technical perspective. I mean, you talked about a lot of the technical components and how it's almost it's almost flawless. And I would agree with that. But I, I do think the performance there, there is more going on than just a technical display here. I think that there's some really interesting thematic exploration um, that isn't quite as cold. It may leave you cold um, with maybe what it has to say about some of those things. But I think that the, the act itself of exploring it actually is, is, is a little bit more than, than just a technical exercise or, or, or emotionally cold. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really, I really like this. And the second watch, it, I did enjoy it more the second watch, or I did appreciate it more the second watch, however you want to phrase that. Um, I found a lot more of the little things that I had missed. Now, we can talk more about this later, but I simply just sort of didn't connect some of the key plot elements in the first watch um, that were easier for me to connect on the second watch, um, which may also have been what you were alluding to when you were talking. But yeah, even in the performances, I think a lot of them benefited from a second watch and be able to see the the, the work being done in, the, in that you know first two or three acts of the film, two or three chapters of the film. Um to, to sort of set up everything that's going to happen in the last hour. Yeah, I mean, and I don't think I really got back around to this point, but, oh, sure. you know, I was talking about it's important to see it in theaters. And I think, um, you know, if if you want to watch it on Netflix, just know that you're going to have to lock in to watch this movie. Like, this is not the typical Netflix movie experience where you can just kind of throw it on and, you know, mm-hmm. do other things, which is how I see, you know, a lot of viewers probably as consuming Netflix. Maybe that's overly cynical, but um, still, I th- I think even if, you know, you you are a more involved movie goer, you know, the tendency is more there when you're watching Netflix to be on your phone, whatever, sure. you know, during yeah. the movie. And, um, and you, you just can't really do that for the movie. I mean, like, you know, you were saying like you, you, you maybe didn't put complete plot elements together the first time. Yeah, like in theater like right as the movie ended i heard a lady in my theater saying that well i don't know if i really know what happened there at the end and that was having seen it in theaters right Mm -hmm. um and it's not because it's like super hard to follow or there's like a lot of plot or anything it's just the movie doesn't tell you a lot right it it shows you a lot rather than telling you which i I think and everything's important a good quality of the movie right um and so you have to have noticed little things from early in the movie to maybe understand the breadth of what happened at the end of the movie even if even if you understand the overarching this is what happened right like in the plot um i think to to get the movie again you have to have noticed little things early on and i'm not saying i'm i definitely didn't probably notice everything um and that's why i i I do think a second viewing is going to be you know very helpful for almost anyone it's just mustering it up to sit down for that second viewing is the only issue like that i will have with that and i think phantom thread was a is a good comparison yeah like you know honestly a few of paul thomas anderson's movie like even there will be blood is a movie like that as well right where it's like i know this movie is like perfect probably but like do I just like how how do I get myself in the right mindset to sit down and watch it because it is it is taxing. That's really how you gotta I, get I feel. Shit, yeah, yeah. That's that's really how I I feel about it. And I agree with you that like that's why I don't really like it when people say 
oh, I admire it more than I love it because I feel like those two things just go hand in hand for me most of the time. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know a better way to describe my experience with this of like coming out of it and being like, well, that was amazing. But why don't, why am I not like, you know, oh my God, like I got to go tell everyone to see this movie and blah, blah, blah. Going to go home and watch it again. You know, like I, like I have been with something like, I don't know, Red Rocket or another one of my favorite movies this year. Well, I, I think I, I guess it just depends on what 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 are the kinds of experiences that you think everyone needs to have, right? Yeah. Like, there. I'm not to say that like intense, heavy dramas aren't movies that are must see experiences, but like the truth is that a movie like Red Rocket, I mean, yes, I think Power of the Dog and Red Rocket are both extremely watchable films in completely different ways. Like once you get once like the like sorry you sort of light that fuse, like I was saying. With Power of the Dog, I think the movie just goes like it's kind of hard to to take your eyes off the screen. And in, in my at least in mm-hmm. my experience, watching it yeah. the second time, but I, agree. I I totally understand the sort of like mental barrier of like, am I going to turn this on um, another time to watch it? I mean, I, I had the luxury of having two months between my two watches, right? Like it's not like I I watched it on Wednesday and came home like in the theater and came home on Saturday and was like, all right, let's turn this puppy on again and go. Um, well, it wasn't like that. Whereas, like Red Rocket, like it's a genuinely funny movie, right? Like it, even if you made a horrible decision to not think too much at all about like what's what's actually going on in the film and the and the themes underlying it, like you could just you could turn that on in the background and have a good time watching it. Like you absolutely could. Maybe problematic, but like you could do that. Um. So, and and I think there's other movies this year that that have been like that as well. And I do find what you're saying like i do think it's harder a lot of the time to recommend movies um as many movies that are that are of that sort of sensibility um like power of the dog or phantom thread or the master other pt there will be blood things like that that are like just harder watches um in in that department but i do i do think that it is one of them for me though i I guess to come back around before we talk in more detail about some of these performances it it really did cement itself on the second watch is something that is is a must see um i have such an appreciation and love for movies where the where the detail is is everything right um i don't think that's a bit of a i don't think that's any a surprise to any of our listeners um with some of my past reviews and favorite movies of, of years and stuff like that um and, and i think that jane campion what she's able to do here is almost sort of feels like you know at or near the pinnacle of what you can hope for when it comes to like detail driven cinema. That's not, and it's not trying like, and to be clear, it's, it's not trying to confuse you. It's not doing any yeah. tricks. There are no plot twists in this movie. It just expects um, more of you than the average yeah. movie does. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's a real compliment to a movie to say that, like I didn't connect the dots and it, I don't feel like it's because the movie was like obfuscating things for me. Totally. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, I feel that you know that woman in in your, in your in your screening yesterday, I think I walked out of Power of the Dog the first time and it did not feel like I knew what happened at the end of the movie, um, <laughs> except I didn't have the luxury of being able to just Google Power of the Dog ending because <laughs> nobody had seen it, it yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the film festival because no one had reviewed it yet. There were no ending um, explained videos. Yet. Yeah, there were no ending explained videos yet for Power of the Dog, so I just sort of lived for two months with <laughs> with not being sure exactly what happened in the movie. <laughs> Um, look, no, I, I think one of the you went and read the book just to find out, right? <laughs> well, it's funny because the book is much more explicit about what happens in the ending. Campion actually I'm is sure, much more yeah. subtle. 
um because i was reading about this actually yeah the the book is is much more explicit i, I mean the, the the movie more or less tells you at the end of the movie what has happened my problem was like i don't understand what happened i don't understand how that happened well okay well then i'm curious then i mean we can get into spoilers at this sure, point yeah. i think yeah, yeah, yeah. I, i'm curious what parts you needed a second viewing to stitch together so again i think i was being a little bit of a dum-dum when I was watching it the first time, but I really did not connect the dots um, on Cody Smith McPhee's character and exactly all the things he had done um, in the, in the middle of the movie, like going and finding the, you know, the dead carcass of an animal that had anthrax, cutting it off, mm -hmm. washing it and saving it to kill Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Right. Um, I did not connect. I did not, I had not connected those dots effectively. Um, did you realize movie. though that he had killed him? I mean, because well, the ending more or less tells you that he killed him. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I realized. No, I I knew okay. that, but I was trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I guess just plainly put, like I didn't I didn't connect those dots. Like I didn't connect the him going out and riding on his own, um, and finding that you know sort of anthrax riddled yeah, and, carcass. And there's all the all the little pieces of it too that like you know he's he's there when I believe he's there when. Or, I mean, we at least see the moment just so that we know that, like, when when um, when Phil is castrating the animal and he's like, I don't ever wear gloves. Right. Like, that's another that's a whole nother part of it. Right. Because, um, like, he basically like, he picks it up because he, you know, handles the rawhide and like he, you know, doesn't ever have gloves on or anything. Whereas when Cody Smith McPhee is handling he's always putting the, on his his latex he always has his gloves on, yeah. yeah um yep. so that that's part of it as well right like just those those little things yeah. like that um yeah yeah but, and, and but, I, yeah I, that's 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 not surprising like the the part that i think is yeah i mean that, that, again there's all these little pieces of it like sure, you, go ahead. like i'm saying you might know what happened right you probably will understand that he has you know, poisoned him with anthrax, but yeah, how did he do it? I guess is is the part where there's you know, um, yeah. there's some more ambiguity there. But also, I think just their relationship, like what happens so, between the two yeah. of them, right? Like because I think you could definitely, and I mean, and some, and that part is more ambiguous, right? Like that that is kind of like left up to your interpretation. I think to some I think extent. that's the real. I mean, that's the real thematic juice of the movie for me. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, yes, he killed him. Sure, that's like that's not thematically interesting, right? Like, it's interesting narratively, but like not interesting thematically. And I think it's the relationship for me, which I think I got a lot more out of the second time as well. That is the real juice of the movie. Um, to really squeeze and, and, and save her a lot out of because I think there's a lot of complicated things happening. So yeah, sorry, that probably got a little too just funny analogy to be using based yeah. on what we're talking about. Yeah, 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 that's fair. Um, <laughs> um, they, because I think there's some really complicated things happening there, complex things happening in that relationship. Um, and I think it sort of ties back to the kind of person Phil is and maybe how similar phil and peter actually are at the end of the day yeah. um but we can talk about, let's talk about the, let's shelve that we're gonna okay. i want to come back to that very specific thing because i have a lot of feelings about that after a second watch um but let's talk about benedict cumberbatch and he he is the man with all of the awards buzz i don't know if he's the favorite right now to win best actor he's probably not i think is will smith the favorite right now still mm -hmm. um yeah. yeah 
But for me, Scott, I'll just go ahead and then show my hand. Like, I think this is like hands down the best a lead acting performance of, of the year that I've seen. I just think there's something incredibly powerful. And I mean, you may not feel the same way, but I think there's something really moving about this performance, about his performance and his and his like really subtle transformation um, in in little ways over the course of the film. Scott, do you feel the same or are you a little bit less hot on, on this on this performance? No, I, I feel mostly the same as you. I, he's in, you know, he's up there with Simon Rex for me would be the yeah. other one that is in my, you know, top echelon, obviously, for sure. best actor. But um, yeah, this is the type of performance that I love and, and kind of what I was alluding to in the in the intro that, um, you know, there are certain uh, uh, again, when you get to the end of the movie or when you watch the second time, you realize like um, the things that he was doing all along that the first time around you may have been like this seems kind of bad right like that because he seems <laughs> yeah. one dimensional at first i always and i have sure. the same experience with i think it's hard not to have the same experience with uh one of my favorite performances which is naomi watts and mulholland drive does the exact same thing where you're like what why is she doing this and then you really you realize and you're like oh actually she might be a genius and i feel the same way about this performance that you know he seems really just so one-dimensionally cruel in the first part of this movie right like mm -hmm. and without really any explanation for it um it seems he's just like he torments george he torments peter he is you know just very cruel to he's to terrorizing rose. even more than tormenting he's yeah. like terrorizing rose just psychological i mean yeah the whole uh duel that they have between with him playing the banjo and her playing the piano is uh and his a, whistling you know, Toward so a force good. scene, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he's but and, and and again, you don't really understand it until you do, um, until you realize that this is the image that he is projecting, and the reason that it seems so one-dimensional is because it's not really him. It is him trying to do. It is him performing, right? It's him trying to do an impersonation of this alpha male cowboy that he was taught to be by this person who meant Bronco a Henry. lot to him yes yeah. um and once all of those pieces lock into place then i think you realize um you know how brilliant of a performance that it was all along and you know i think i think the movie is very intentional about when when things start to change right it's and when things start to change in his relationship with peter as well um because i i mean i i think it is certainly possible to to come away from the movie and look at it like well i don't understand why he just all of a sudden shifted like this right in the in midway through the movie but i think you have to look at the events which you know which which led to that and the the event you know that we see right before this kind of happens is when he is out in the stream bathing right and peter discovers him um and you know he chases him or whatever but after that point is like the point where he starts to you know embrace peter soften up we see this different side of him because they have shared a sort of intimate moment in a way and now that phil has opened that part of himself up to although not intentionally of course it has now mm -hmm. happened um and now that he has opened that part of himself up to Peter, which he has not really opened, you know, up to obviously his men who look up to him as 
um, you know, again, sort of the successor to this Bronco Henry guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is when he starts to soften as a character. He starts to have this relationship with with Peter. Um, but even still, right, like because Cumberbatch plays it really well, like he's able to be like he's on the verge of just snapping in in a second. You you never know, right? Like this whole time when the two of them are seemingly buddy buddy. Yeah. You never know with either of them who is playing the other one is one of them playing the other one or like is this whole thing actually genuine and i think that you know that speaks to that tension that you're talking about that is just really just keeps being drawn taut like that rope that they're uh you know making that that phil is making um until you know it's it snaps yeah i mean yeah i love i love this performance I think there's so much nuance in it. You'd be forgiven. I think everyone would be for thinking, you know, this character isn't very interesting in the first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie. And like, you know, I don't need to repeat everything that you said, but I think that there is as soon as you, as soon as you are introduced to this, the whole notion, and I call it a notion because Bronco Henry is this kind of person who you can imagine never actually existed. Um, and and it's really just this I- ideal in someone's mind. Like, sure, the person lived and, and died, but was he even the person that Benedict Cumberbatch's character is describing him to be? Or is it something else that has been idolized and created? Um, I just think it's such a it's such a fascinating obsession with, you know, again, sort of this like prototypical or, or archetype of a cowboy. Um and the obsession to 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 conform to that and the need to conform to that is so strong um and it, it almost makes everything like the world around phil and this ranch that he's created where his ideals are sort of accepted and 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 thought and like striven towards um it it feels like the world around him like beach montana his brother other people that aren't his ranch hands like all of those people have sort of just moved beyond that reality of accepting, all right, we need to be like this notion of, of alpha male cowboy, like you were saying. And I think that the way in which he's sort of in the like the first third of the movie, the first act, he's just sort of clinging on to like whatever reality he can that, you know, acknowledges and, and accepts this idea and and says, you know, you are doing good to be like this. Um, and there's, I just feel like there's just so much to read on, on his face and all of these scenes where he's even early on when he's being cruel. Um, I just feel like there's so much to read in that. And then I think, you know, the, the nuance really, you know, folds in on itself and continues to, to then unfold again, as you realize that it's a struggle for him to be like this, right? Like it's hard for him to live up to these ideals and he has to not just be mean to others, but he has to be mean to himself to do these things. Like he has to isolate himself in the barn because the governor's wife may not accept him for being filthy, um, even though he's filthy and he likes it um, as he sort of yells, yells at, at, at George. Um, and I just think that there's just something, you know, you, you called it austere, the, the whole film earlier on there's something just really austere and cold 
but also really moving, I think, about about that kind of portrayal um, once you understand what's going on and moving in a sense of like pitiful, right? Like, like you pity this guy. It's not that you would admire him or or feel emotional warmth towards him. Um, it, it's pity. And then there's so much extra complexity that I feel like is injected when you see Phil sort of start to accept Peter and what exactly that means. Like, again, the first that first watch is just like your your heart is like tightening every single time they say a word or look at each other in the second half of the movie because you just have no idea what's going to happen between them. Um, and that's part of that is the filmmaking, but also part of that is the is the performance and the way that, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch holds his cards as Phil Burbank. To switch gears and talk about Cody Smith McPhee, um, I think he's the second best performance in this movie. I'll just be honest. Um, a lot of talk about Kirsten Dunst being on the table for best supporting actress, which I think is is fine. But I I was kind of surprised on a first viewing how much more talk there was about Kirsten Dunst and how much talk there really wasn't about Cody Smith McPhee. I don't, no, he's I, definitely he's definitely high on that. Well, that's what I was about to say. Like, I think the tides might be shifting a little bit there mm-hmm. um, based on some awards that came out this past week, but also just conversation in general. Do you feel the same or, or do you feel like this performance is now getting a little overhyped? No, no, I, I, I don't feel like it's getting overhyped at all. Um, I, th- I think it's really good as well. And for similar reasons to Cumberbatch is right. Like you have a very... Um, particular image of him in the first part of the movie, which is, you know, he's just kind of this sad put upon kid, right? He's got, he gets made fun of by, by Phil because he has like this lisp um, and he's just kind of this, you know, sensitive soul or whatever, who just spends his time up in his room, putting together these albums and picking flowers and all this stuff. And to be clear, it's uh, because he's like effeminate. He has a effeminate mannerisms. That's why. Uh, Yeah. yeah, But that's, that's what I'm saying. You basically think he is sort of that one dimensional, you know, stereotypical, like (laughs) effeminate, um, withdrawn artistic teen. Um, And then, you know, again, like with, with Cumberbatch's character, it starts to, to reveal itself a little bit more and you really start to question a little bit what's going on in the relationship even between him and his mom right um i think there are some very subtle notes maybe of um a a more serious relationship between the two of them than than simply a mother and son that's what i will say um yeah maybe we can something that. something that explains the vigorousness which with which he is um you know committed to his mother and you know feels like he has to do what he does in order what he ultimately does in order to avenge his mother in order to bring her happiness whatever Um, i want to double click on that i'm I'm gonna let you finish but i want to come back to the exact point in a second when i sure yeah um and then yeah just the way his his interactions with with phil as well i mean like you said, I think they turn out to be more similar than um, than you would have ever thought in the first part of the movie. And again, I, ju- I just keep thinking back to like little moments. Like, for example, the scene where early on he goes, I guess it seems like he goes to his father's grave and puts some flowers on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if the implication there is like that 
his father was also this type of sort of alpha male cowboy maybe and that is why um number one why rose is super traumatized by what phil is doing um because maybe it it makes her think of that experience um but also explains that what that you know maybe um he sees something in this lifestyle that you would not have expected a character of his attitude demeanor whatever like the you know the qualities i'm talking about in the first part of the movie that um you know he sees something in this lifestyle that you would not have expected from that type of person um so i think about that that moment as well and um yeah I, I, it's it's a strong performance to be sure and yeah again it, it's one of those where i feel like like with cumberbatch performance i feel like once you watch it the second time you're going to notice all of this stuff that he's doing and just all, even you know even the little moments again like the putting the flowers on the grave and there's probably other ones that i didn't even you know i didn't even perceive the first time around um but yeah i, I mean I, I think for me cumberbatch is definitely the standout performance i would put the other performances kind of in a a similar bag for me quality wise i think they're all strong um mm. but i do think that cumberbatch is kind of he kind of stands tall among the cast for me yeah, I'd agree with that with that take. I guess to go back and talk just more about, you know, what's going on with this character, the similarities to Benedict Cumberbatch, um, the whole relationship with with his with Cody Smith McPhee's mom, with Peter's mom Rose. You know, I think that's fascinating. I think that there's like a lot of illusions going on that the relationships between Peter and the you know, the adult figures in his life, his mother and then Phil specifically, less so. We don't really see very much of him and George. I mean, they actually barely see them at all on the screen yeah. together. Um, but but those two relationships, that there's like a lot of allusions to Phil's relationship to Bronco Henry. I think there's like a lot of similarities. Well, yeah, definitely between Phil and Peter. Well, yeah, but I think that what you're even like what you're saying there about his mom, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it's more subtle, day, but it's there. Yeah, yeah. Even at the end of the day, right? Like Peter, and th and this I think is read a little bit more clearly. Is like Peter, and in the first voiceover, I always forget about the the voiceover at the beginning of the movie. Like you have Peter stating in the opening line of the movie that with his father dead, he had to he had to defend or stand up for his mother, right? Like telling you from the first line of the film what his like what his motivations are. And I just find that really fascinating, like what's going on with that relationship. I think there's some real question marks. And I think they're just question marks. I don't think that it, it really gives you an answer one way or the other on this of like, did Peter kill his father? Like, did he kill his father to protect his mother? Yeah. Um, because he talks and there's this really long um scene in the in the last act of the movie where Peter and Phil are off sort of riding together and Peter in a very cold way tells describes him how his father died like he was a drunk his father died um and i think that knowing the kind of per because because the viewer knows the kind of person that that peter is already um for the most part like obviously he hasn't killed phil yet but um like you know the kind of person peter is and i think you're i think you're kind of meant to question whether or not peter played a role in his own father's death um especially in, in an yeah. effort to protect his his mother's happiness and I hear you, you know, sit here and talk about how, you know, you see a lot of 
there might be there might be some connective thread between the way Phil terrorizes Rose and how Rose may have been terrorized by you know her former husband, um, Doctor Gordon or, or whatever. Um, and I think that there's like a lot of potentially even more subtle text to read into there. I'm I'm not sure how that plays out, but yeah, I mean, look, if we're just strictly talking about the relationship between Phil and Peter, I mean, there's yeah, th- there are so many allusions to the relationship being similar to that of Bronco Henry, which begs, you know, how, how much of that is just perceived by Phil versus is, is true in reality, I think is an interesting question because I think if you sort of read it in a different lens, be like, well, does that mean that, that Phil killed Bronco Henry? Um, I think it's like kind of, I think that's like re- over reading it a bit, but yeah. um, it's an interesting thing there. Just like all the subtle ways in which they have similarities. Like there's similar images that I caught the second time. They didn't catch the first time. One that really sticks out to me is, is when, Peter is dissecting the rabbit in his room, right? And you have this image of all the entrails of the rabbit laid out in his desk and it's carved open, things like that. Well, there is an an image only a few scenes before, I believe, where Phil is skinning one of the the cows or the bulls. Mm -hmm. And right in front of you, all the entrails laid out neatly on the ground. Um, split open in the middle, cutting the fur off. It's just really interesting, you know, similar images uh, between the two of them, you know, seeing the dog barking on the hillside immediately. I mean, there's just so many similarities and that adds to the tension between the two of them. It makes you again wonder like what level they're operating at, right? Like, is is it a real relationship they're forming? I'd actually argue that it is a real relationship that they're forming. I would too. But Peter's but both of these characters are so committed to their central idea, ideals, ideals with an L. Peter, or for Phil, it's being that Bronco Henry cowboy with a capital C um, alpha male type. And for Peter, it's Protecting making sure his, his mother is happy. Yeah. Um, and one of those led to to what happens at the end of the film, right? Um, that's unavoidable. And for, for Peter, that's unavoidable. And I just find that fascinating because I think this film is sort of angled as portraying Phil as this like, you know, cautionary tale of toxic masculinity at the real surface level. Right. Um, But I think it's saying a lot more than that and actually has a lot more to say about what this whole notion of like being so committed to the things we value most, Um, you know, even at a broader sense than just being toxic um, can can do to, to can do to people. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think Cody Smith McPhee to actually talk about Cody Smith McPhee and all this. I think he does that really well. Like again, going back to something that I feel like I've said already, but just it's not just the technical aspects that make this film so tense. Um, it is the performances too. It is sort of the unreadability of some of these characters' faces as they interact with each other, and you're just not quite sure what direction it's going to go. And um, really good job by Cody Smith McPhee. All right, we jumped around a lot there. I mean, we've talked about some of, I mean, we've talked about the ending of the movie already. We've talked about the themes um, in quite a lot of ways, but there are a couple other characters. There's Jesse Plemons, there's Kirsten Dunst. Any thoughts you have about them? Yeah, kind of, kind of one of the final things that I guess I wanted to highlight is I think that the movie, you know, we're talking about how the movie does a good job of, you know, revealing that there is toxic masculine, that showing a different side to this outwardly very toxic you know figure in um phil 
you know, that that presents very, you know, aggressively toxic in the first part of the movie. And then, you know, we start to understand it more and empathize with him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie does the reverse of that in a way for Jesse Plymouth's character for George, right? Who presents at the beginning of the movie like a, you know, he's this sweet guy. He's helping Rose, you know, set the table when sure. Peter is not um is not there and he's going to take care of her and you know he's going to be the you know just sort of loving husband that she you know she deserves and then he just kind of abandons her right like when um you know from almost from the moment they get to the ranch and you know it everything sets into motion um you know, he's forcing her into like playing the piano when she's telling him, you know, multiple times, like, no, I'm, you know, I'm not, I can't do this. I don't feel comfortable doing this. And obviously she's not ultimately able to end up doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. He doesn't really stand up for her in front of Phil, right? He's just kind of um, like, like the, the withdrawn quality, like the soft-spoken withdrawn quality of him that you see in the first part of the movie and you see as like a positive thing when it is contrasted with, you know, his brother um, starts to become a little bit of a negative when you see it playing out, like where, again, he, he, he won't really stand up to his brother um, even when he is tormenting her. And, you know, eventually I think, you know, quite literally just leaves her. It seems like, I mean, I guess, you know, he's off doing business or whatever, but like he just kind of disappears you know, halfway into the movie and we rarely see him again in this in the second half of the movie. So I think the you know, I think the movie is also suggesting that there is a toxicity to this type of soft spoken, quicker, you know, not quick to action, like, you know, the antithesis basically to everything that that alpha male, you know, Phil is in the first part of the movie. I think I think the movie is also suggesting that there is a a negative side to that, or at least, you know, there is in this old West that the movie has created. Um, and you know, the, maybe, maybe the gender dynamics going on there as well. Um, so I like that the, the movie, I like that the movie did that. I think that's also a subtle thread that, you know, maybe doesn't have a, a ton of importance in the main plot of the movie and the main events of the movie in the end. But, um, mm-hmm. which just adds a layer to that critique to me that you're talking about. Yeah, I think George is one of those characters that is just the most surprisingly absent in the movie, especially in the second mm-hmm. half. Um, I should say particularly in the second half. He's not that absent in the first half, to be fair. Um, and that's why I think Jesse Plemons sort of registers for me a, a little bit lower um, compared to the other performances, just because a lot of the character is is, is his absence. Right, like the absence of this character in this scene or the absence of this character doing something to stand up for another character is sort of how I think you read uh, most of George Burbank, which is fascinating because you're right. He is sort of portrayed as this almost heroic figure for Rose and, and Peter. But I think almost immediately, right, like not even the second half of the film, like as soon as they're married, the way that he conducts himself it's un- it's it's unsettling a little bit, right? Like the way that he even talks to Rose is unsettling, not in a disturbing way or anything like that, but just in a way that like, I don't know that like, this, this just feels like you're getting married to get married kind of thing. 
right? Like it's a yeah. status thing almost as opposed to anything else. He definitely cares about status. I mean, that's the whole piano thing as well. Like, you know, he yeah. wants to give Inviting the, governor. the governor. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think that I I hesitate to call that toxic, although I do think that it's fair to. I think that it is. Um, but it's almost just sort of like I don't even have the right word for it. It's it's if it's toxic, it's a different kind of toxicity. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's unsettling, and uh, it's a good performance for sure. Um, but just because yeah, it's he, not he's as perfectly ca- he's he's perfectly cast in that role. Oh, you sure. Know, the, yeah. the role as we're describing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kirsten Dunst for me again. I, I do think that it's like a little. It's just in, it's ended up being just a little overhyped for me. I think that the performance is is really strong, and I picked up a lot of more subtleties to it especially the subtleties in the first half of the film. I don't know if I love the turn, the the performance of the turn of the character in the second half. It's just this completely deranged alcoholic woman um, on the ranch. I think that the more she sort of succumbs to that, the less compelling the performance becomes for me, um, which is a shame. Maybe that's just a, a it's a forced part of the narrative. And yeah. maybe there's it's the best way to read the narrative and the best thing to do for the narrative, but uh, something about the performance, just, it takes the, it takes the edge off of it a little bit. Yeah. I, yeah, I understand that reaction. I actually, but I have actually seen people saying that this, that they think this performance is bad and like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I Um, I would not go that far. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I simply put like, it's a, it's a good performance in a, in a film of great performances. I think some people might be projecting past, experiences maybe that they've had with Kirsten Dunst on screen onto this movie well, because I, I think I think she's quite good. I don't think it's best supporting actors for me either, but like I get why she's being talked about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean she also has the burden of being the only female character in this movie, pretty much. So hey, I mean that's know, not true. There's Lola. Lola, uh, yeah. T- Thomas and McKenzie or whatever who referees the squash game which is basically all she has to do in this movie yeah yeah that and discover the the dissected rabbit the the rabbit right yeah yeah yeah. um yeah well scott i feel like i could talk about this movie for like another hour but i i think we'd probably just be sinking into repetitiveness at some point so any other thoughts you want to get out any any other uh demons you want to exercise about this movie yeah no I, i i don't i mean look look you should see this movie. Um, you, you should absolutely. We've see brought this him movie. around. He's he, it's a must see. Here no, we go. No, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it's a it's a must see, I guess. But um, if you are wanting to see the best films that 2021 has to offer, yeah. you owe yourself to check this out. Uh, you, you owe it to yourself to check this out. Um, and I would highly recommend seeing it in theaters if you can, um, because I think it will. You, obviously you just naturally pay more attention when you are in the theater. You, you can focus more in, when you are in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you will get a lot more out of it on a first watch than you would watching it at home, but you won't get everything out of it. There's just, there's just no way. So it, it's, you know, it, I guess the other thing would be accept that embrace that, you know, you're not going to understand every single thing, probably the first time you, you see it. And that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just means no. there's a lot to it. And sometimes that means watching it again. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a must-see for me. It is absolutely a must-see movie um, for, the, for the year. 
really powerful stuff. I guess to talk a little bit about the technical aspects, which you talked about in your general impressions, but I am actually super taken with Johnny Greenwood's score. I think it's his my favorite of his three this year. I mean, crazy to think that he has three. Could, could he get triple nommed at the Oscars? I mean, that's not realistically <laughs> going to happen, but like it could, right? Like if they were in different years, yeah. they probably all would be nominated. Um, pretty crazy stuff. But I, I think this is my favorite close, close neck and neck race between his Spencer's score as well. Um, Scott thought he went a little was, too hard. I thought it, I mean, I yeah. thought it, it was right. I don't know. I think he's just doing a bit too much for me in places where it's like, like I get it as trying to build anxiety and tension and whatever. Um, but, you know, the the movie is so restrained and is so more of a show more than tell movie again, like I said, which I enjoy that. Like, I don't know, some of the times I felt like it was just forcing me towards like, don't you feel so intense right now? Like, aren't you so on it? Like, there's a moment when Kirsten Dunst runs from the house. Okay, yeah, I thought th- I thought this was the one you're. Well, say. this was okay. one. I mean, it wasn't the only one, but it was definitely one. It but, is. And there's it, like this really. The one, there's these really jagged piano chords that I was like, "What is going on?" Like it's distracting. Like it 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 yeah. goes beyond like making me feel you know anxious like I'm supposed to, and it's just like it's a little distracting for me um, in in a, in a few places because it is so. Yeah. It's it's so different. I mean, it, it like really is different than the rest of the score too, and I think that's yeah. actually why it, it sticks out well, more than for me. But yeah, it is. But I think other parts of the score again are overbearing in the, in the same way. It's not bad. It's just I I definitely prefer the Spencer one. Yeah. Well, look, the Spencer one's a great score as well. I'm not gonna if it's the one that that wins or gets nominated, and this one doesn't. I'm not gonna not gonna throw a fit. Um, but no, this is for me. This is really good. You mentioned that it feels overbearing because it feels like it's trying to force you to feel something. I guess for me, like I just didn't notice those things because I felt like I was feeling them already. And so like the score was just sort of backgrounding how I was I feeling it, yeah. when I was watching. But um, look, that's an interesting perspective. I, if it, It's not good if, if a score is making you feel that way. I just didn't feel that way. It It's definitely a contrast. I mean, you brought up the movie earlier. It's definitely a contrast to his Phantom Thread score, right? Where you don't even really, you almost don't even notice it's there. It's just kind of, you know, in the background. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and even even though you found it overbearing, I mean, I'm glad that you got to experience the score and the sound of the film in a theater with, like, full surround sound. That's As a side note, this has nothing to do with Power of the Dog. But, like, I think that I've I've had a I've grown a new appreciation of sound in a theater this year. Like how much better it is, just like truly, truly, like honestly, like even better than than the visual comparison in a theater versus at home. Like you can get a really nice TV, and like frankly, you can get something close to like a visual experience um, in a theater. Now we're not talking like IMAX or anything like that, but like you can get close to like a normal theatrical visual experience in my opinion at home at this point but you just like can't come close for the most part with sound like said it's like that that surround sound and the ability to just sort of completely overwhelm you with bass um and audio in a in a in a theater i think that is like just the biggest contrast for like at home viewing um for this movie and included in that but anyway i get off my soapbox now favorite scene or moment from from the power of the dog yeah that's a that's a tough question because I think there are a lot of memorable scenes or moments. I I, I do like the whole um, showdown that happens when the governor comes to the house. Um, I, I think everything that happens there is really like, particularly again with the ideas that I was talking about 
um, between George and Rose. I think there are a lot of moments where she just gets like left by him there, right? Like she's left to mingle with these people that she obviously doesn't really fit in yeah. with when he's like, okay, it's time for the play the piano. They all get up from the table and walk over to the piano and she's kind of just left sitting there at the table for a second. Yeah. Like, Oh crap. Like I'm not, I'm not actually going to be able to do this. And now I don't really have a choice. Um, and then, you know, Phil coming in and, um, you know, stirring everything up and being like, you didn't even play. Um, yeah, it, 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 I think it really, you get, you get a lot of what is going on in the movie in that one scene. I mean, obviously Peter's not there, so you don't get that aspect of it, but, sure. um, a lot of the stuff that really resonated with me, I think is, is, uh, you know, is going on in that scene. So that was a good one. And, and also, I mean, you know, the, the last scene between Peter and, um, Phil in the barn as well is very strong. Oh yeah, absolutely. God, I'm shocked you didn't choose the scene of of Benedict Cumberbatch masturbating with Bronco Henry's handkerchief. Yeah, it was probably number three, right? Yeah, I think yeah, that was right there. it was just right there. Yeah. Yeah. What a fascinating scene that, that really dwells on it. Um I, I jest, but it actually is like I think a pretty strong scene. Um look for me, I think it would actually be the scene that you've chosen. Um, but to be more interesting, I'll do I'll do something different. And I think that picking a scene out in the wilderness, the one where Phil and Peter have ridden off together and they're like chasing this rabbit and it, all like all the while having this sort of like deep conversation about like their upbringing and stuff like that. Um, talking about things that encapsulate a lot of what the movie is doing. I think that is, that is one of them. Um, that This is the scene where Peter is talking about how his dad died um, in a very cold, emotionless, removed way that, I think that Phil finds pretty startling um, and isn't really quite sure what to make of it, but yeah, powerful stuff. And talk about like, that was the height of the tension in the movie for me, right? Like that's where it started and it carries through to that final scene in the barn as well. Um, but that is just cinema. Let's put a score on it out of 10. What are you giving the power of the dog? You know, even though I didn't have like the full experience, I guess I wanted from this movie. Um, and it was just, you know, like I said, missing something there for me to just like be as effusive as possible about it. I would feel wrong if I gave something that is this masterfully made less than a 9.0. Um, so it is getting a 9.0 for me because I think it is an exceptionally well-made movie. I try to balance, you know, objective and subjective in my, my scores. And um, so that's kind of where I come out. You don't have to explain your score, Scott. It's okay. People have been confused for years. I want to score things a certain to. way. No, I'm kidding. I'm just messing with you. Uh, 10.0 for me, Scott. Uh, it wasn't a 10.0 on the first watch, uh, but it was on the second. Uh, got a lot, yeah. a lot more on the second watch, and I think it shored up some of the, some of the things that I felt like were holes in the film. Um, you sure, you don't want to go 10.2 or 10.3. Uh, no, that's only Dune. Sorry, can't do that. Oh, um, no. I mean, I don't even think I gave Dune a 10.0 actually. <laughs> I don't know. Um, look, I, I don't balance as much. I, I mainly I have a different internal calculation for for scores. I think I probably enjoyed doing more than this, if whatever that means. But um, this is this is a film. Scott, this is quite a film. 10.0. Yeah. One of the things I guess as we wrap uh, as I as I exit this part of the podcast, we didn't talk about is like the cinematography here from Ari Wegner. Like it rips. It's really good. Yeah, really strong. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's that's all I had to say. That was my final thought. Uh, that should do it for our discussion of the power of the dog. Let's take a short break. When we return, 
Scott already said it. We're going to have some Nick Cage news to talk about and our first awards update of the year after the National Board of Review's top 10 list, the New York Film Critics Circle, and there's one other, the Gotham Awards, uh, came out this past week. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, we've got two bits to talk about. The first, Nicolas Cage, Scott, one of your favorite actors out there in the business, at least of a certain flavor. Um, He was recently announced to be cast as Dracula um, in an upcoming movie about, I guess, where Dracula is on the periphery. He's not the main character in the film. It's called Renfield. I think we've talked about this movie before. Nicholas Holt is set to star as this character Renfield, who is like a henchman of Dracula and the movies, I guess going to be about him. I don't really know too many of the plot details about it, Scott, but Nick Cage is Dracula react. Amazing. Uh, on, on paper. Amazing. I will say, and, and this, you know, to tie in my thoughts a little bit with pig, you know, when you hear Nicholas Cage is going to play a guy who is going, trying to get revenge for his, you know, beloved pig that has been kidnapped. Yeah. Your your mind conjures up an image of a very particular movie and Pig is not that movie at all. Um it is it wants it is a very gritty wants you to take it very, very seriously serious. type yeah. of movie. Um yeah. and it's a well done movie for that type of movie but I just think I don't know. I just think we're at a point with Nick Cage where it's very hard to divorce a certain image of him from you know him watching him on screen. Um, you think prisoners of the ghost land are bust for Nikki? I mean, it, kind of. Um, I just, yeah, I, and, and especially you know, for me, like the setup of like again, he has this beloved pig or whatever is kind of very kitschy and like not something that I feel any emotional, you know, connection about just because of my whole thing with animals. You know, it's been yes, Scott is anti animal record, we'll move on. It, but yes. yes, uh, I'm a poacher. Um, but (laughs) no, but, uh, because of that, I just kind of felt like, I don't know that I didn't know that 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 pig was the right movie for Nicolas Cage. Ultimately, um, even though it sounds right on paper, because number one, they want to take him seriously. And number two, they, the, the setup of the movie itself is not that serious, but they also want you to take it seriously. So it just gave up a weird vibe to me and that's not to say that Nicolas Cage isn't a very good dramatic actor like he obviously is I just think the ship has sailed on that at this point right like I we just kind of we think of Nicolas Cage in a particular particular way um so you're I not excited I mean, about his upcoming film the what is it the something weight of of unbearable talent yeah well I I am because that sounds crazy and surreal and everything I mean I still think he's probably capable of you know, doing a serious dramatic role and us believing it and, you know, and going with it. But Pig was just not the the right movie for me to be doing it in. But all that to say, as far as Renfield goes, I mean, yeah, Nicolas Cage playing Dracula. I'm not saying he needs to go full, you know, Count Chocula with it, but um, <laughs> he's going to have some more room to cut loose. And for me, at least, that is when he is at his best. Um, so 
I hope that the movie will lean into that a little bit. I mean, you know, Nicholas Holt, obviously another actor I'm a fan of. So, um, you know, we'll see what he can do as, as Ren. But yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I, I, after watching Pig, you know, things were kind of put in perspective for me a little bit that, yes, on paper, obviously this sounds, sounds great for, for Cage. What are they going to let him do with it, I guess, is my question at this point. Uh, Chris McKay, the director of the Batman movie. The the Lego Batman movie, sorry. Lego right, Batman. yeah, the Lego Batman movie. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, okay. That's, that's I guess, a little more encouraging. I mean, I doubt something with the, the tone of the Lego Batman movie is going to be made here. It's also but, Aquafina uh, is in this movie, too, which I we didn't talk about. She was also, I believe, cast this okay. week alongside Nicolas Cage. So it's it's not... I don't think it's entirely playing it straight. I'm not sure. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to be overly self-serious, but we'll see. Yeah, but here we are. Who who even knows? Um, yeah, I I I have fewer emotions uh, about Nicolas Cage. I think he's a fascinating character study of an actor in real life, which is which is what makes the unbearable weight of massive talent. I finally remembered the name. Um, that movie so fascinating to me because like you know it's some level of that film is going to be like self-examination um which i mean nick cage i mean is there a more interesting actor to examine like his career and his person and his like persona i hate to even say personality it's like a, it's like a full persona or character that i feel like he puts on um in real life which i have no idea if he's actually like that in private or not but um fascinating stuff but yeah i mean look nick cage's dracula sounds great why not sign me up all right. So speaking of signing you up, Scott, I know you're signed up for award season. So why don't you tell us the recent updates on that? Because it feels like we're in full flow now after this week. Yeah, we are. Uh, you know, there's a, a few different things to cover here. Um, the New York Film Critics Circle, um, to start in your neck of the woods, Scott, yeah. um, voted on their annual awards this past week. And I think there were a mixture of sort of expected winners and surprises probably amongst the, the fold, the expected winners, maybe being Jane Campion for the power of the dog winning best director. seems like she's also the Oscar favorite at this point. Chloe Zhao uh, won ben, last year for best director at the New York film critics circle. If that's an indicator. And Benedict Cumberbatch also winning for power of the dog uh, in best actor. Again, he's, He's probably right up there competing with Will Smith for that role and Oscar consideration right now. Cody Smith McPhee also rounding out the power of the dog trio winning there um, with his win for best supporting actor, where he is also firmly in the race um, at, at the big one. Um, he's, pr he's probably the favorite right now for supporting actor. Yeah. At no? this moment in time, um, probably, but you know, things change and power of the dog just came out. So I'm sure that's influencing influencing that as well but um yeah yeah but yeah he's definitely up there um, i was thinking about the some movie of still to come this year that might that might usurp it having a hard time thinking of what might outdo it unless there's a huge push for mass it's not, yeah it's not always that a movie that comes out usurps it sometimes it's just it's true. conversation changes yeah. um very true but uh yes and then some of the more surprising winners scott i guess lady yeah. gaga winning for house of gucci in the best actress category um deranged choice look i think we both liked the performance we talked about it last week but sure. yeah I, I don't think she should probably be in the oscar race at all this this um, category is every year is just absurdly stacked and as much as i think lady gaga had a, had a strong oh. argument from when for winning back in the 2019 awards for the 2018 movies 
I, I don't I don't know if we need to like you know rewrite history and give her an award for House of Gucci. Yeah, uh, best supporting actress going to Catherine Hunter for the tragedy of Macbeth. Scott, one you've yeah. seen that I have not yet it comes out. At I shrug. Yeah, I I don't feel strongly either way. I'm like sure, it was, it was it was a good performance from her. And another one, it doesn't seem like she's really getting that much talk for Oscars, but I could be wrong about that. But um, I mean, she's in the movie for like five minutes. I mean, it's a, it's so short. It's probably it's more than that, but it's a very brief performance. Another one I forgot to mention, sort of in our expected category, Paul Thomas Anderson did win for best screenplay for Licorice Pizza, which um, it sounds like he is also the front runner for best original screenplay for the Oscars. So um, we will see. Uh, we can talk about that at a future date. Of all yeah, the awards for him to win, screenplay is makes me want to vomit, but sure. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, Scott, maybe the biggest surprise coming at the top uh, with the best film category going to uh, the one of the two films this year from the uh, Japanese filmmaker Ryosuke Hamaguchi. This is Drive My Car, uh, this three-hour-long film that um, has been sort of... Um, I think it has recently sort of come out in limited release, at least in um, New York and L.A. I'm not sure about anywhere else, but obviously foreign sure. language film um, winning for for best best film, you know, probably will be in the in the conversation for best foreign language film at the Oscars. Would be shocked probably if it not. got a nomination for best picture. Probably not for best picture. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that there are any foreign language films this year that are really circulating around best picture yeah probably not parallel mothers or definitely not maybe Titan. the thing is almodovar has yeah. like a little bit more push and... he, de he definitely does yeah that, yeah if there were to, if there were to be one it would probably be that but i, I don't think it's going to sneak in there uh but no, drive my car so winning do what i was gonna say i don't i don't think it will either i mean yeah. first cow won best film at the new york film critic circle last year and we like First Cow. First Cow is a fantastic movie. Was never even remotely in the conversation for getting nominated for Best Picture. Right. So, and, and that's what you get at these critic circles, Scott, sometimes because the critics have the power. Sometimes they want to give attention to movies that are not going to be considered in um, in yeah. Oscar season. And I think Drive My Car winning for Best Film is probably the um, area where they most did that. Um, the New York Film sure. Critics Circle, at least. Uh, but I know you enjoyed the film. I don't know if you want to say any words about yeah. it for a minute or two. But. Yeah, I do want to talk about it because I, I did want to mention it. This is one of the I mean, I, I talked about the rescue because we recorded a little bit late um, last week. So I'd already talked about the rescue, but drive my car was and licorice pizza, which I briefly just alluded to are the two other two other two movies that I've seen this week. Drive my car. Just absolutely incredible film. Um, glad to see it recognized somewhere for the strength of it. I mean, Ryusuke Hamaguchi has had an incredible year. I mean, you mentioned that it's his second film. His first film uh, isn't isn't a, a weak hitter either. It's an anthology film um, called Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is uh, a completely original screenplay from him. Uh, really strong, emotionally hard-hitting film about the relationships we have with other people, um, specifically how romantic relationships affect the rest of our lives, even after those relationships have have ended and and we've quote unquote moved on. Drive my car, it has some similar themes, but in terms of its construction, it's just kind of like a breathtakingly constructed film. It's based, well, I should say it's it is inspired, which is the words that they use, inspired by a Murakami short story of the same name, 
called Drive My Car. Um, but really, that story is just a framing device for a movie that is sort of completely re, you know, redone um, in terms of a narrative, in terms of how that narrative is 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 structured. Um, it takes other inspirations as well. There's other short stories that inspire this film, and there are some original components to the script as well that Hamaguchi wrote himself for the movie. And I just found it to be utterly captivating. 180 minutes um, of film. It's the kind of movie that you know just sucks you in from the opening scene. The way that these characters um, live with each other. I mean, the opening, the first act of the movie is essentially just two characters. Well, two, three-ish characters, more or less, interacting um, over the course of 30 or 40 minutes. And it, it's it's breathtaking. It feels like, you know, I'm oh, I'm back in the theater watching Hamaguchi tell a short story, right? Which is essentially what the first act is. Um, and then it pivots into the sort of the main meat crux of the film. Uh, I, I joked, I think, in my letterbox review that, you know, one of the biggest flex in like long cinema is splashing your title card at like the 40 or 45 minute mark. Um, just a tr- just a true flex of, of, of filmmaking um, when you can do that and, and have it feel, you know, OK to be doing that in a year full of movies that are too long. Uh, this film is very long, very enjoyable and earns its 180 minutes. It's. You know, we talked about House of Gucci being like an epic film where it didn't really feel like very much happened over 20 plus years. Uh, Drive My Car is a film that is an epic film where it feels like the world has happened over the course of essentially like a few weeks. Um, a pretty remarkable film, in my opinion. I don't know if, if how I feel about it versus Parallel Mothers. If we're just talking about foreign films, they're very different movies. They're styles of Almodovar. And Hamaguchi, I mean, like, I don't want to say they're polar opposites, but man, like completely different styles, putting stuff on the screen, um, but captivating. Scott, I guess you haven't seen a Hamaguchi film like his style is just so emotionally restrained and um, like emotionally conservative and how he has his actors portray their their characters, emotions and feelings. And I'm sure that a lot of that might come from like the cultural background of being Japanese. I I don't want to speak too strongly one way or the other on that, but the restrained nature of those performances just leads to like these absolute explosions of emotions that hit so hard. I think um, when they do finally crescendo to a peak and it's just totally overwhelming. I felt the same about wheel of fortune and fantasy. I definitely felt that way about drive my car. Um, I just find his, the the range of his ability to construct a film, um, just like looking at what he's done this year is is to me it's just some of the most remarkable work. Yeah, I mean, I really want to see both of these movies, uh, but don't know when or how I will get the opportunity. Unfortunately, and if my independent theater they had Will and Fortune Will of Fortune and Fantasy for like two days, um, yeah. and I wasn't able to to get over there then, but. Um, you know, if the awards buzz starts circulating around drive my car, at least in the, even it, it, just in the international feature category, um, mm. then maybe my MD theater will, will pick it up, but, um, hopefully sooner rather than later, I can see at least one of these. Yeah. I feel it was a bummer that you, I know, I remember you saying when wheel of fortune and fantasy was there, but there was just too many other conflicts for you that week. You couldn't, you couldn't get out and see it, which is totally understandable when it's only available for a week. i I've had the same problems here in New York before too. Um, I don't even drive know if my car full week, but yeah, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, but drive my car. Like at this point, after having seen it and having, I mean, again, it's just the New York Film Critics Circle. 
I think it'd be pretty incredible if this doesn't get nominated for best foreign, uh, best international feature at the Oscars. And so I think mm-hmm. that means that it probably will get some sort of release wider in these like indie indie theaters. Um, but I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But it, it feels like it's Drive My Car, Titan, A Hero. Um, like those three are like definitely getting nominated. In the Flea, Flea is one too that is on the. I mean, Flea is definitely going to be nominated for best documentary, and so, I yeah, have yeah, also Flea seen too. it make it yeah. make it into best foreign language film and like. Some no, you're right. Film. I think absolutely. So th- th- those feel like um, like I'm not an Oscar predictor, but those four feel like they're locks for nominations in that category. Yeah, um, the worst person in the world, maybe. I don't know if the fact that people won't have seen it by you know you know when it when it when the oscars hit or yeah. i mean i get, I, I, I it's hope not coming out till february i guess it's yeah i mean they'll all have seen i mean they'll all have a screener for it who knows whether they're right yeah them. i mean um, sure i think again that's the one where i hesitate to say it's a lock i think it should be uh, um but a lot I mean, of people look, seem to think it should be i mean a lot of people love that movie but it's a remarkable film scott you're gonna whenever you see that movie you're gonna you're gonna really like it that's what i've been told uh yeah. I, but i have to wait till february it sounds like unfortunately uh but anyway scott moving on to the gotham awards these are sure. uh the awards for independent films primarily so maybe not as strong of an indicator as the oscars um because you know well, the oscars they're, they're like the Indie Spirit Awards, where it's like they're almost like the anti-Oscars. It's like whatever wins here yeah. isn't going to win at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, that and and that is that is probably probably true. Um, but still, I think instructive to look at. Um, the big winner here, Scott, was the Lost Daughter, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's movie for Netflix, which we've both seen, but we haven't talked about yet because it's still it comes out I think around Christmas time um, on Netflix. But uh, it won for best feature. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal was awarded for breakthrough director and olivia coleman tied for the win in the outstanding lead performance category they group male and female performances together um she tied with frankie Faison for uh, the killing of kenneth chamberlain which uh, uh i mean i'm familiar with the movie but uh i don't That's think funny, i'm be not familiar with the movie. i'd actually yeah. had never heard of it until it's the gotham awards it's like a true story about like a an old ma- black man who i think was killed maybe i don't maybe by the police he's like autistic or something like that it's sounds like a tough tough watch but, oh it's uh, like um is it like fruitvale station kind of thing where it's a dramatization yeah, of possibly. a real okay yeah i i think so but frankie phase on winning for that uh and maggie gyllenhaal also winning for best screenplay for um yeah. the lost daughter so we um, should mention that the lost daughter also won best first film at yeah. the new york film critics circle so kind of a, a trend there yeah, uh, it's a strong film for sure that we are gonna we're gonna talk about in a few weeks, I think. But uh, so Maggie Gyllenhaal cleaning up there elsewhere. Um, you know, we just mentioned it. Flea winning for best documentary feature. I drive my car again, winning for best um, international feature in the supporting category. Scott, which was a strong category actually. Uh, you know, nomination wise, you had Reed Bernie in there for Mass. You had Jesse Buckley. For the Lost Daughter, Coleman Domingo for Zola, Gabby Hoffman for Come On, Come On, Ruth Nega for Passing. So a lot of my favorites from this year were were in there. But uh, Troy Kotsor, who plays uh, the father in Coda, probably my favorite performance in that movie. Um, he he uh, took home the award for outstanding supporting performance there for for Coda. You know, a real a real crowd pleaser of a film. So. I totally understand that one. I feel like I'm going to have to rewatch that movie, Scott. I mean, we keep calling it just 
a simple crowd pleaser, which I think is generally true. But I think at this point, there's like there's like actually like way more momentum behind this thing. Like I don't think it's really going to make a dent in award season, but there's like enough momentum where I'm like, should I just rewatch this? It's been so long. Yeah, uh, Amelia Jones also winning the lead from yeah. that film for best breakthrough performance, um, you know, beating out Rachel Sennett, Susanna Sun, a few couple others. Um, and Scott, you know, the last thing, which I know you'll be happy to hear, the jury award for ensemble um, yeah, at the Gotham Awards went to The Harder They Fall. So another movie which probably won't, unfortunately, receive a lot of um, of best picture or, I mean, of, of any Oscar consideration. Um, but definitely one of our one of our favorites but uh scott the you know, national i was board looking of- at to, sorry just quickly like it was funny because i feel like i was watching i was looking at gold derby and it's like surprisingly higher on a i mean like it's early like these they're, it's gonna drop off the power rankings i have full faith but like it was like high up on like, like the the odds for like several awards getting like nominations i was like this surprises me yeah, I, I just don't know. Maybe I guess maybe Jonathan Majors, if if there was a performance that was going to be recognized, would be his. Um, it's more technical, to be fair, not less yeah. acting. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, no, I just totally get that. before we move on, I have not talked enough about this movie this year. I'm starting to realize Edson Oda was nominated for a Breakthrough Director for Nine mm-hmm. Days. Guys, Nine Days is one of the best movies of the year. You should all go watch it when you get the chance. Yeah, that's that, and that's another one. I was trying to think earlier when I was talking about Pig. I was like. Movies that I missed earlier in the year that I got to catch up with, and that that is absolutely up there. But um, yeah. and it's on streaming now. Like you can, I, yeah. You can is it on Hulu? It is that where it's at? I don't, I don't think remember. it's free streaming. Oh, it's VOD. It's VOD. It's yeah, VOD. It's on VOD. Yeah. National Board of Review, Scott, is the last one that I um, wanted to to hit, uh, and this is probably of the three that we talked about here, the one that's going to have the most overlap with the Oscars. The top ten films: Belfast. Don't Look Up, in no particular order. Belfast, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, The Last Duel, Nightmare Alley, Red Rocket, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and West Side Story. Scott, noticeably absent there, The Power of the Dog, uh, not making the top 10, which is which is strange, but yeah. uh, I, I don't think that, at this point, uh, you know, reflects anything about the Oscars. I think, you know, if you want to look at your potential best picture lineup, this is probably pretty close. I mean, I don't, The Last Duel is not going to be in there. Red Rocket is definitely not going to be in there. Um, but these other eight films that I've stated, uh, you know, Belfast, certainly. Um, Dune, I think, is pretty close to being a lot for best picture at this point. Um, a nomination. King Richard, I think, will probably get the, you know, down the middle um, nomination. Uh, Nightmare Alley, obviously, Guillermo del Toro's last film won um, Best Picture, so he always has a chance. The Tragedy of Macbeth, obviously a you know buzzy film with Joel Cohen directing and Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand starring. And West Side Story, I mean, it's Steven Spielberg remaking a Best Picture winner. Uh, plus, and Belfast, I might have skipped over, but um Belfast you know one of the favorites at the moment and don't look up Adam McKay's film again Adam McKay's last two films have been nominated for best picture so um would not God, I saw that like don't look up is like second or third favorite right now for best picture and guys I'm I'm very excited to see this movie in a week because I absolutely love Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence but the the notion that that is the third favorite one best picture right now fucking horrifies me (laughs) it's not great uh, I mean, it, and if that's how Scott feels, you can think how I feel. But Scott, turning to the awards, um, 
Best film going to Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's um, movie, but it didn't make it in the top ten list, which is weird. I don't know if that's if there's like a some sort of thing technicality. Look, I have there no idea, man. I, I don't yeah. know. I can't. I can't tell these things to you. I don't know. Licorice Pizza winning for best film, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson winning for best director, and then looking here at the acting awards again, some names that we'll definitely expect to see in the Oscar race: Will Smith winning for Best Actor in King Richard. Best Supporting Actor, Kieran Hines for Belfast. Again, someone I think will probably get a nomination. And Best Supporting Actress, Anjanou Ellis for King Richard. Somebody else who has a good chance to get a nomination. Sorry, why did King Richard not win Best Film? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, and Best Actress maybe is the one where there was a little bit of an anomaly, that being Rachel Zegler winning for West Side Story. This is, I think, her film debut. Um, Haven't you seen all the tweets on Instagram from the influencers saying that she's an absolute movie star, Scott? Come on now. I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that her performance is going to be really strong in the movie. I, I, I don't know if I've seen her in the Oscar conversations yet, but maybe once West Side Story comes out next week um, and, you know, the conversation around it, you know, gins up even more than it has been. Sure. Then her name will enter that race. But well, um, to be fair, Scott, I was only being facetious about all the people who have their reviews sure. written before before the, they actually watch the the film so oh yes of course but that would never happen um yeah. scott screenplay asgar farhadi winning for a hero a best original screenplay and joel cohen winning for best adapted screenplay for the tragedy of macbeth um sure not much else really of note here uh best documentary did go to summer of soul which is one of my favorites another movie that if you have not seen this yeah. year Please check it out. One of the it went, it went to flee at at the New York Film Critics Circle. It did, yeah, yeah, just for um, and again, best ensemble going to the harder they fall. So, uh, unfortunately, no ensemble category at the Oscars, but um, maybe but there's maybe a the SAG the Awards, yeah, which is their best picture. So it'll probably be like, I don't know, what's what's some like one man show that's going to win best ensemble at the SAG Awards? All is lost. Yeah, I mean, look, it wouldn't have surprised me if it had won that year. Um, no, I, I feel like I, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but I, I don't know. Power of the Dog will probably win Best Ensemble. I don't know. Anything you want to note here about the winners uh, for, uh, at the National Board of Review? Licorice Pizza winning Best Picture and Best Director a lot more a lot more sensible than Best Screenplay, in my opinion. But we can talk more about that at a future date. That Look, at, I get it. I, I really do. It's an intoxicating film. Not unlike uh, how intoxicated I felt by the by Red Rocket and what Sean Baker was able to do with his filmmaking um, and just making you really fall in love with uh, questionable characters. Um, but yeah, like that makes sense. I would be surprised if some of these awards directly translate. Like, is Will Smith really going to win his Oscar for this? I just ha I just have doubts. I don't know. I've got a lot of doubts about about the the momentum of that thing running all the way through award season, but maybe it's maybe, maybe he will persevere. It's not a memorable movie. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? Like it came out early and it's not memorable, um, but people like Will Smith, Will Smith is a memorable person in Hollywood. And maybe that will be enough to, to push it over the finish line. I feel like we haven't had an interesting best acting race in a while. Is that true? Am I just forgetting? But I feel like we haven't had an interesting one in a, in a minute. No, I think you're probably right about that. Well, yeah, I mean, like... la last year's, I guess you could say, ended up interesting just because, you know, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, see, see that's the complicated there. thing, right? Like the whole the, the the lead up to it wasn't interesting at all because it was just yeah. a given 
that Chadwick Boseman would win. But then there was the huge twist at the ceremony, obviously, um, for everyone involved. But yeah, it wasn't an interesting conversation leading up to it, right? Um, I wonder if it'll be more interesting this year. It's one month shorter, which, you know, God have mercy on all of our souls that we won't be talking about whether Chadwick Boseman will win a posthumous Oscar for an extra month this year. Um, just because what a horrible way to to continue to talk about a guy who did a lot more than just, you know, do Ma Rainey's Black Bottom um, for a month. But yeah, interesting. You know, it's a two horse race right now, I guess. Maybe it'll be a third, uh, you know, a three horse race when all is said and done. I'm curious if I, like Bradley Cooper has real has real it factor in uh oh, for Nightmare in, Alley. In yeah. Nightmare Alley. But we'll see in a couple weeks. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I, again, it's the Guillermo del Toro thing, I think, is the the factor because like otherwise I wouldn't say that Nightmare Alley looks like a movie that's gonna get a lot of Oscar nominations or anything. You um, said that about Shade of Water think... though, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but, but that's the thing. And now, you know, shape of water has one best picture. People know the name Guillermo del Toro. Um, I don't think we can go back to the time before that. So I think we actually, we, we, we definitely have to consider it a major player in, in all the, the categories in a just world, Simon Rex would get his name in there, but I think he's going to be fighting very hard and probably uphill just to get a nomination. So, I mean, I think the, 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 I think the big battle for Simon Rex is going to get is going to be A24 giving him enough attention to get the nomination. And I think if A24 gets behind him, he has a shot. Uh, I I don't I but I think they're just going to look we haven't really talked about Denzel Washington that much for Tragedy Macbeth, which is the movie that I think A24 and Apple are going to like put their well, you know, yeah, put their yeah. impetus behind. Could be wrong about that, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Man. Is Andrew Garfield going to get a push? I feel like people are talking about I him. Yeah, I think he could get a nomination for sure. I don't think he's going to win. I'm going to be honest with you. Best picture right now, I know that we're talking about Belfast and Power of the Dog. I think West Side Story is going to have legs. Like, I just can't imagine that we are not going to be talking about a Steven Spielberg-directed, you know, remake of one of the most beloved musicals of all time, a film that won Best Picture. I can't believe that we're not going to be talking about that as a front-runner for Best Picture when yeah. we get to when all is said and done you know i i agree with you i really wonder how much the discourse of ansel elgort being a piece of shit human being is going to like is going to pop up if that probably not as not as much as we think i i, I don't i mean like how, how many people are really tuned into like that being well i mean we're talking about film twitter I, I guess i'm just thinking about film twitter but yeah well yeah the, the yeah i I've, i have already seen a few people that were like everything about uh, maybe it was katie walsh that said like everything about uh west side story is perfect except for one thing and she would like she didn't she left it at that but like you knew exactly what she was talking about sure yeah i mean look it 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 seems like the the musical of the year like sorry cyrano sorry um insert every other musical that we've had this year boom dear evan hansen yeah god dear evan hansen was this year jesus christ that did happen didn't it um yeah in the heights yeah it's like sorry guys move aside steven spielberg made made a remake of a musical that is beloved and by all accounts seems to to rewrite the history on some of its more problematic um elements 
yeah sorry guys you're getting you're getting pipped this year for best musical uh if that's a thing but yeah interesting i think we'll be talking about it but man i i again what even does it mean to have like discourse outside of film twitter i don't even know like i know that like zero voters of the academy are on film twitter but man i just feel like that is going to be all we're talking about if west side story is like a serious contender for best picture like that that is the discourse that's going to be out there because like like there there's like two people in the world right there's people who think ansel elgort is like a horrible person which is like maybe where i sit i don't i need to read a little bit more on it and there's people who just think he's a horrible actor right like no one likes ansel elgort (laughs) yeah that's the thing right that's the tricky thing about 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 this movie and he's the lead i don't know man yeah, I mean, it it seems like maybe the rest of the whole production and spectacle of it might be able to over overcome that, but um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, they gotta they gotta pull like a full. Um, we'll see next week. That's yeah, that's that's true. They have to they have to pull a full um, Bohemian Rhapsody and like com- like carve him out uh, of the movie entirely, like they did with Brian Singer or whoever it was. I think it was Brian Singer. Yeah, all, all the money in the world maybe is the better analogy where they well, yeah, I mean they really reshot they're not gonna reshoot it, yeah. but yeah, sure, yeah. Um sort of like post talk they just like shipped in Dexter Fletcher and it's like, you know what, you're gonna get the credit for this movie. Right. Be like they're just gonna like I don't know, I just can't imagine like just like those horribly photoshopped gifts where they like you photoshop someone's face onto like a movie scene that looks like a character that like that's what they need to do for West Side Story. Be like, no, actually it was uh, I don't know Miles Teller. Oh no, that's a bad choice. Can't do Miles Teller either at this point. Um, who who can who can we put it? It's Timothy Chalamet is in West Side Story. <laughs> He's going to sure, Photoshop yeah. his head onto it or something. Oh man! All right, that should do it. I think we need to cut it off there. Cut ourselves off. Um, yes. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvy Dent on Twitter and Letterbox. And you can find me at at Shelton two zero one three on the same. You can also follow our podcast Patreon page at www patreon.com slash media plug pods check out the reward tiers support us if you can uh, we'd really appreciate that if not that's okay you can still find us on wherever you find your podcast typically rate review subscribe share we'd really appreciate that as well um and thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies we'll be back next week with a review of that very film we were just talking about steven spielberg's newest movie a remake of the classical or the classic musical west side story we hope you join us then but until then for scott harvey I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.